This is quite uh, an extraordinary passage that I think many of us are, again, we've, we've hit a real familiar section um, in Luke, the challenge to look at these texts afresh, to continue to um, not just gloss them, but dig and work upon them and through them. Here is an interesting take as the rich young ruler comes out, as was read for you in verse 18. Luke is presenting this man as a part of the broader scene of Jesus' teaching so far for a portion of time. He has been instructing uh, since early on in 17, we're going through 18, and there's some sense that this young man, this young wealthy individual, was, was in some proximity to the teaching ministry that was being conducted at that time. Mark makes an interesting note uh, uh, about the man, and we'll look maybe in a moment, but he came running up to Jesus. So maybe, the, again, he's present hearing the current teaching regarding the kingdom of God. He's some proximity to it, and he's close enough to hear what's going on, and then he eagerly comes up to Jesus to ask this particular question. Isn't it interesting, after Jesus has been speaking, since the tax collector and the, um, and the Pharisee, then with the picture of the infants, this individual comes out and says, but what should I do to inherit eternal life? Again, maybe a view of himself that is on stage in that moment. Okay, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I got the picture, one of the Pharisee, the tax collector. I'm hearing all that. I, I, I agree. I, I can't be found in that audience. Um, then we see the kingdom and the, and the infants and the reception of the infants and the parents and their relationship. And then this exhortation to everybody else here. This is how you must come, in humility, empty of self. Yes, I, I hear that too. But then as Mark records, he comes running up to Jesus eagerly. Because that might work for everybody else, but, but I, I'm a bit different. I'm, I'm unique. What must I do to etern- uh, inherit eternal life? I think what's significant about getting into um, the 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 text of the rich young ruler is to grasp the portrait of what we're dealing with here before we presuppose upon a man or maybe how we've thought about this individual before. But let the text kind of give us the fair profile of the person. Perhaps you'll be a little bit surprised. Turn over to Mark 10, if you would, just for a brief moment, and we'll come right back. So maybe keep your hand there in Luke, because I'm just going to flip right back. But I I do want to highlight the profile as we begin of the rich young ruler. So we we don't put upon him things that are not present, and we recognize the individual as is being presented to us in the text, step by step, stride by stride. It's significant for how we interpret what's going on in the text. Verse 17 is what I was referencing just before. Verse 17 says, of Mark 10, it says, and as he was setting out on his journey, that is Jesus, and and they're moving towards Jerusalem. We see that at the end of our own text in verse 31. But it says, a man ran up and knelt before him. And he asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, before we get into Jesus' response, and we'll do that out of Luke, just, I, I want you to see what we're dealing with here. Look at verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Maybe you haven't noticed that detail before. It's so significant to the way we view this young man. Now, flip back over into Luke, because all the rest of pieces of Mark are essentially in Luke, and that's the gospel we're working through. But there are two pieces that I want you to consider right off the bat as we look at the profile of the young man in question. We see, if anything, my, I, I'm putting forward to you, we see in, in Mark's gospel and the presentation, and again, he's here in Luke too. It's, it's a synoptic situation. It's just that Mark is adding the detail. You need to know he ran up and knelt before him. 
I'm, I'm only putting forward the, the profile that we see already about the young man is that he's at least, if nothing else, he's at least eager. That's what Mark wants you to know. This is how he acted. This is how he behaved. So, so before we bag on him, we ought to recognize he's at least something. One thing that we can affirm is he's eager. And then we'll explore just a little bit as to why, about what. But, but then the other piece that I wanted to highlight about um, Mark 21 in Jesus' response. So after Jesus gives him the law, again, of which we'll look at in just a moment, the man says, yes, I've kept this all my whole life since my youth. And Jesus looks at him and loved him. Right? So before we would all go, oh, of course he said that. Oh, my word, he is so wrong about that. And our impulse immediately to scoff or roll our eyes or put him, throw him under a bus somewhere, we recognize Jesus looked at him and loved him. There is something about the man in the profile that is commendable. That is what's shocking in this passage. I'm, so I put forward so far, he's eager, and the other piece I'm adding to that, and you, you can fill in your own terms um, and, or, or judge mine and see what you think of that. What I'm putting forward is he's virtuous. There's something about the man and his response that is commendable. What should I do to inherit eternal life? Go do all of this. I've done all that. Jesus looked at him and loved him. You'll see it in a few moments as well in Luke as well. Um, I might as well give it away. But if you look a little bit later in the text, um, look at verse 24. It's the same as 21 in Mark. Jesus looked and despised him. No. Look at the portrait of the young man. Jesus looking at him with sadness. Mark and Luke both writing about the emotional context of this young man and his response to Jesus. That is significant for what's taking place. And it's significant for how we view ourselves in light of this text. What we are dealing with here in the portrait of the rich young man who approaches Jesus is a very sincere young millionaire. We're dealing here, if we could put it into like 21st century context, he went to the right schools, he has the right degrees, he has the right occupation, and it's brought him an enormous amount of wealth. And he's young. I don't know know where the age spectrum would be, particularly maybe young 30s, mid-20s. He's done really well. And he is very commendable and sincere. In fact, notice how Jesus even seeks to correct his sincerity. Look, look at what happens and transpires in the immediate discussion in Luke between him and Jesus. Just look at verse 18. And, and a ruler asked him, or, or this young man of great wealth, this young ruler asked him, good teacher? Right? Now, now, first, add Mark's account to Luke's account, and we know, again, the situation. He, he, hey, get out of the way. Get out of the way. I got, I got, I got to get to the, Jesus. Hang on a second. I've been listening to the whole dialogue here. Hey, good. And here he emerges in this moment to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And look at verse 19. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? And maybe in a rough reading, just reading by, he's like, man, these are two separate conversations. He's wondering about the good situation, and then he gets to the Ten Commandments. What is going on? Why is that the response to this individual? How does it make sense within the text to come right back and say, not about eternal life. Oh, you got a wrong conception of that. And then he starts with the sincerity of the man's speech, 
Good teacher. In fact, Mark says he knelt down before him. Good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you're wrong about eternal life. No, he starts with the concept of goodness itself. Let me ask you this. Why did you just burst on the scene and call me good? He then adds clarity to the thought of real and true goodness. No one is good. That is absolutely, truly, in essence. No one is good except God alone. You see, Jesus isn't getting into a theological dispute, which is important for us to notice. What's the point of the statement? He's not surrendering some sense of goodness to God and then moving on into a discussion about the Ten Commandments to the man. He's challenging the man immediately, the man of sincerity, who is eager and wants to know. Jesus is challenging the thoughtlessness of his own understanding of goodness and badness altogether. Let's start there with your thoughts about goodness. And as a correlation, kind of a connecting point, therefore your thoughts of what's bad. Let me ask you, what is good and what is bad? Why would you rush up here and call me good? What do you mean when you even say good? In other words, before we proceed in the passage to see how this question to this very sincere and eager individual is at the heart of the passage itself, it's not something else that he begins to talk about, but he is challenging you and I, both of us, as we look at this passage through the rich young man. He is challenging him and us to slow down and think for a moment about the difference, the distinction between relative goodness and absolute goodness. That's at the heart of this passage. That is the challenge that you and I face as we read this passage. Have we embraced the sense of goodness? What do you mean by goodness? Is it a relative goodness? Well, I'm just thinking of goodness more vaguely. No, no you can't. Not when eternal life is at stake. There's a relative goodness that lay holds, and then there is an absolute goodness that must be bestowed. What did you mean when you ran up here and called me good? There is only one who is truly good. Notice again the sincerity of the man that is now just beginning to hear, why are you asking me that? Why are you asking me about why I would call you good? Notice how Jesus moves the conversation forward to spotlight on this issue of the man's sense of goodness and where our sense of goodness is. Is it relative or is it absolute? If it's relative, is your relative goodness good enough to inherit eternal life? That's the question of the passage. What must I do to get eternal life? Why did, you add, why did you call me good? Of course you're good. Are you good? Sure, I am. That's the battleground, is the concept of one's sense of goodness, moral rectitude, uprightness, and its relationship and bearing upon one's eternity. Notice how Jesus points this out so brilliantly. He moves the conversation directly into the commandments. I'll just jump back into the conversation so you'll see the whole entire thing right at the issue of goodness. Verse 18, and a young ruler, or, or a ruler, asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, 
Why do you call me good? Why wouldn't I? No one is good except God alone. Then he proceeds to turn the spotlight on this sense of goodness. Verse 20, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the man interjects, verse 21. And the man said, all these, yes, all what? All the commandments, yes, I'm with you, yes. All of what you just outlined and all the others I just cut you off with, I have kept from my youth. You see, he is sincere. Yes, I agree with you. He is in absolute agreement with Jesus at this point. In fact, he would say this to each and every one of those line items, if I can. And you see in the passage, again, if we just went commandment for commandment, listen to what the man would say in reply. He simply summarizes, all of these I have kept. Yes, I agree. But what is he really saying when Jesus specifically says something like, do not commit adultery? Listen to the man's response. He's hearing Jesus. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. He's checking them off one by one. Okay, because I'm coming. Teach me. What must I do to have eternal life? Don't commit adultery. Okay, uh, thinking of my life. Yes, I am faithful in all of my relationships. Do you see? He's checking them off as Jesus speaks them. Yes, don't murder. Do not murder. Yes, I seek to preserve the life of myself and others. Not only have I not done what the law forbids, I have actively pursued what the law requires. Yes, I am generous. Do not steal. No, I wouldn't. I'm generous, and I don't take false money. Don't bear false witness. No, I desire the truth. Honor your mother and father. Oh, I love and respect my parents, indeed, all who have exercised authority over me. This is the thought of the man who indeed is virtuous and sincere. In his opinion, as he self-reflexively reviews his own performance, he agrees with Jesus. I don't think here he is even arguing that he's kept them perfectly. But I think his argument is, I've kept them sincerely. His life is genuinely organized in his mind by the moral law of God. You see, his performance then betrays him. Go do all these things. Yes, I agree, and I have, and I try to, and I live by it. Ask my neighbor. But I want to say something to you still, Jesus. I, I, I want to ask you something, not, not about the commandments. I already do that. I'm already organized by these principles. What I want to ask you is, there's still something lacking in my portfolio. Do you see the betrayal? I do all these things. But there's something still lacking. That I'm still seeking out wisdom's teachers over, and I'm still seeking you good teacher in this very moment, having heard you speak for the last several hours. I push people out of the way. There's still something at the center of my being that is lacking. I'm doing, and I'm doing, and I'm doing, and I'm trying, and I'm trying, and I'm sincere as I can be, but there's something still lacking in the center. What can I do to add to what I'm doing to inherit eternal life. You see, he knows that there is something to personal performance that lacks true and genuine fulfillment. Look at the question of verse 18. 
as has been argued already, that he's in complete agreement about the execution of the law. His question in his mind is different than that. Because I already do. Verse 18, the ruler asked him. No, I want to ask a different question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it's this question. What must we, individuals, what must one do to inherit eternal life that stands at the center of a profile like the rich young man? Not that it doesn't stand at the center of all of our lives, right? I mean, it, it, it is what gives birth to philosophy from the beginning of time is the controlling question, who am I and what is this world all about? Where did it come into being, right? It, it's not that he's the only typecast that asks the probing question of how one will inter in, inherit eternal life. Everyone has this question. Everyone wrestles with it, and everyone finds some sort of gimmicky answer or a genuine one. Everyone has some sense of, of, of falsehood, soothing ointment, pursuing something to give ease to that probing question. But there is a particular man that we're dealing with here that Jesus isolates and is using to warn the rest of us as well, regardless of our typecast, even if we're not exactly identically like the man in the text. I don't know too many rich young rulers in the room. That doesn't mean we're not present in the text with the same probing question. But I want to phrase it a little bit like this. This question stands at the center of an attractional life. Think with me just for a moment. I'm going to create what's called the attractional life. No matter if you're rich or if you're not, that there is something to be said about the attractional life, like this man in many ways, that brings this question to mind. But what must I do to inherit eternal life? When I say attractional life, what I'm suggesting is this. It is a life that is satisfying in many ways. Again, you don't have to be rich to fall under its indictment. Just hear me out. This question stands at the center of an attractional life. By attractional, I mean a life that is satisfying in many ways. Well-organized, sincere in its acting, and even exemplary in its behavior. Right? So take money out of the equation. Or if it brings you money, think about that. But just think this way. A life that is satisfying in many ways, well-organized, sincere, and even exemplary in its behaviors. This is the rich young man. Coming to Jesus and kneeling down before him. Sincerity. Jesus looks upon him when he says, I've done all of that since my youth. Jesus looks at him and loved him. Let me push a little bit further about the attractional life that is exemplified in this young man. There are many in the church. Think about it just for a moment. There are many in the church whose spirituality is almost exactly parallel in kind to all the other behaviors that make them socially successful and well-networked. Do, do you hear what, what I'm putting together? Here is the rich young ruler with an attractional life that he's living. It's sincere. He's saying, my life is structurally organized by the Ten Commandments. Yes. But one thing seems to still be lacking. Yes. This is an attractional life, organized well. Behaviors that bring you success. Disciplined lifestyle that seems to promote you and enable you to be well-networked as an individual. This is the man in the center of the text. This can be many of us. In other words, the question about the attractional life is this. 
And I want to ask you this as you read the rest of the text for the next couple of moments. I'm asking you this question. What makes for truly righteous behavior? Right? So if you're a believer, you're here this morning and you're a believer and saying, I'm living by the power of the Spirit. I'm living out the, the, uh, a gospel-oriented, gospel-focused, Christ-centered life. I'm, I'm making ethical decisions that are based on that. I'm saying many would say that, but it's simply the same behaviors that bring you other types of success. Like the rich young ruler. I've done all this. I've kept all this. How many of us can say the same thing? No, that's a spiritual life. Is it? Or is it simply the same kind of behaviors that bring you success in other categories? That bring you success in any industry by saying, hey, I keep the Ten Commandments. Will that bring you success in your industry? Yes. Is it distinctly Christian? In other words, as Jesus asked the rich young ruler, what do you mean by good? So let me probe further this question on your mind, and then we'll jump into the text, hopefully answer it, and land this plane. The question is this once again. What makes for truly righteous behavior rather than behavior that is a mere semblance of righteousness? What is it? What makes for truly righteous behavior rather than behavior that is a mere semblance of righteousness? I've done all those things. In this instance of our text, Jesus exposes the difference to this young man between true righteousness, true goodness, and right behavior and self-seeking performance. The two in the church can be so easily overlapped. Because what seems to be spiritual in nature can simply be external disciplines that bring you success in any industry and in any field that you go into. So maybe you would say, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus would say, keep the commands. You say, I always do. But the probing question is, but do you really? Or is it simply the same in kind to other behaviors that bring you external success? So let's move into the text then, because Jesus applies this. He's drawing a distinction between true and genuine goodness, or true righteousness and self-seeking performance. And the way that he does it with the young man is he applies his finger to the sore, right? Like, you know, an open wound, and Jesus is taking his finger, and he's plugging it right into the wound. Like, let's don't fool around here. Let's don't over-diagnose. Let's don't sit and philosophically discuss it. I'm just going to stick my finger in your gun wound. Ah, yes, found the nerve. There's the open wound. Stick right there. Where's the point of exposure for this guy? Not like, let's talk about a bunch of different things. Let's talk about your wealth. There's the point of exposure for this man in the text. But it doesn't have to be that if we're not wealthy, we don't have a point of exposure. We could ask in the text, we just ask everyone in the room, what is the substitute crutch? What is the substitute savior that you're resting in? Jesus could identify it in a moment. He knows it right now. But he sees it in the young man at this point and says, out of all the other things I could maybe address, like, you know, hey, remember that time that you didn't really honor your mother? That's neither here nor there at this point. The point is the wealth. That's the point of exposure. That's the greatest sense of idolatry. Look at the passage as he jumps right into it, verse 18 uh, through. And the rich young ruler said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you even call me good? You're mixed up in your sense of goodness and badness. No one is actually good except God alone. Like, for instance, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all of these things I have done since my youth. And when Jesus heard this, right, as if he was caught off guard, thought, now I could say this. He's leading him directly into the point. Of exposure. I knew you'd say that. And in a relative sense, I might not disagree. 
But there is one thing you're lacking. Okay? Give it to me. Finally, somebody with authority around here that will tell me, not everybody else, what they've got to do to inherit eternal life. You know, the humble and all that stuff. Somebody to speak to me in a way that I can listen. Okay, great. There's only one thing left. Hit me. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. The result will be treasure in heaven. Come. Look at the most probing statement of the text. Follow me. Notice, and we need to notice this carefully, um, the many in the medieval church got this terribly wrong. The one thing that Jesus lacks, or the one thing that the man lacks that Jesus is addressing is not a commandment given by the law for a vow of poverty. He is not establishing a monastery in this text. He is not suggesting that the one thing you lack is the final commandment. You know, for the super spiritually endowed, you go from the Ten Commandments to the 11th, and I'm giving the 11th right here, and it is a vow of poverty. That's the one thing. If you want to be super spiritual, take the vow of poverty and go live off other people and live together in, in a commune and so forth and reject all that the world has to offer. That's not a statement of the text. He is not adding an 11th commandment, and he is not giving you a shortcut to heaven by giving away all of your goods. Notice what he says very carefully. There is one thing that you're lacking. He is giving a totally different category than finances. The financial worth of the young millionaire is not the problem. Lest we just simply diagnose, yeah, rich people, you know how they are, all of them. Roll them up, toss them away, they can't go to heaven. Case in point, this guy. Take a vow of poverty and shortcut your trip. No. What he is saying to the individual is that what he lacks in his well-organized, successful, and attractional life is conversion. That's what he lacks. Look with me in the text very carefully, step by step, stride by stride. Notice the speech of Jesus, verse 22. When he heard this, it was perfect. He said to him, one thing you still lack. Now, take that as its own standalone comment. And then look at the exhortation. Because he can't fulfill the exhortation because he still lacks the one and necessary thing. He lacks heart transformation. You still lack something. I know. Tell me what it is. How do I go to heaven? I am very successful at what I do. I'm organized and I'm very attractional to myself and to others. I live a very well-constructed life. It bears great fruit in my life, from finances to relationships to lifestyle. I have what I want. It's, ask people about me. They'll say the same thing. But what seems to still keep me up is this one question. How do I inherit eternal life? In other words, these things are not satisfying me. I know because in all of your performance, it's ultimately equally nothing other than that, a momentary attractional life. It's not eternal. You lack one thing. Conversion. You see, in the attractional life, if you're living it, well organized, very successful, very attractional to yourself and to others, a web of solid relationships, not a lot of drama, things are going well and well constructed, you're working your plan and planning your work. In the attractional life, or what we say, the ten moral strategies, God is your boss, but he is not your savior. That's the one thing he's lacking. I love my parents. I know. God is your boss. I get it. That's why you're asking me about how you're going to go to heaven to see him. 
I get it. That's what's on your heart and in your mind. But I'm telling you, you lack the one thing that's necessary in your relationship to God is your poor sense of goodness. Goodness isn't relative to your performance. Goodness is absolute bestowed by God. You lack conversion. But what about the lawful behaviors? What about how I don't commit adultery, I don't murder, I don't steal, I don't bear false witness, I honor my parents? In other words, I'm a good person. Yes, yes, and to the church be warned. These performance-based strategies will confirm and amount to a socially successful and well-networked life. They will. But for righteousness' sake. So, so here, I, I'm saying, on, on the one sense, attractional life, yes. I tell you, if, if, even if we just implemented in society at large this Ten Commandment strategy for living, you would see great success between peoples. Yes, by natural law, that's successful. But we'll be just like the rich young ruler, but there's still something lacking. Because for righteousness sake, in the category of true goodness, not performance, but true goodness, as long as he remains attached to his riches and he burns with covetousness, he is not obeying the essence of the law at all. Yes, I am. I told you I don't commit murder. No, let me, let me clarify Maybe I agree with you in some sense, but not in the actual essence of obedience to the law. There's a distinct difference between external conformity and obedience for the sake of success and faith-fueled obedience for the sake of the glory of God. These two things are distinct. but they're easily confused. Once again, the essence of the law is to bear one's cross and to follow Jesus. This is what he says, verse 22, when he heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. One thing. It must be about poverty. No, it... it doesn't have anything to do with, with your, your finances are, are not the morally reprehensible piece here. The fact that you're rich and successful it, it isn't a negative. Other than that, you rest upon it to save you. So, so hear me this way, and I want to point this out to you because you're eager, you're very sincere, I want you to hear what I'm having to say to you. What is it? Give it to me. I mean, I'm here. Hit me with your best shot. Okay. Sell everything you have. And don't just make money off it. Once you make money off it, so you sell everything. Money's coming in. Houses, cars, boats, whatever. Okay, great. All right, that wasn't that bad. As he stands in front of a huge pile of money. That wasn't... That tough. It, I had some hard times letting some of the boats go. But it really wasn't that bad. You know, I think we all ought to detox a little bit. Get rid of some things. It really felt good. Thanks, Jesus. Okay, good. You're almost there. Now take the pile of money behind you and notice the text. Distribute it to the poor. Oh, it keeps going. Yeah, I don't want you to just... Get rid of your things. I want you to bless somebody else with them and let them have them. Oh, I don't know. It's one thing to like, you know, get rid of some things and sell it. And it's another thing even not to have the money. But it's different also, like, wh why would I have to watch other people enjoy it? Do you see the sense of intensity is growing in the man's consternation? Jesus is sticking his finger right in the wound. 
Jesus, not to interrupt, but I was just asking how I could go to heaven. That I, I, I think the other things we can talk about maybe another time. And I'm open to some ideas. Maybe we'll start with a shed or something. We'll liquidate some of that stuff in there. But I'm open to it. I'm, I'm willing to grow. Hey, I'm very sincere. And I want some winning strategies. But what I'm really after is how I'm going to go to heaven. Do these things, Jesus says, verse 22, and you will have treasure in heaven. The thrust of the entire comment, the entire point of the one thing the man is lacking is the final comment of verse 22. The summation of your behavior is a call to bear your cross and follow me. In other words, Jesus is saying to the man, and and I want you to think on this just for a moment. He says, what if I were to say to you right now, and, and I don't know what your categories are. Again, there's probably as many categories of deliverance as there are personalities or typecasts in the room. Our own, idols, our, our own hearts produce them. And, and, and the, 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 the flesh and the sa- Satan, the devil, preys upon carving them into idols that we, not maybe our neighbor, but we, by personality type and experience, will bow down to. So, again, there's multiple in the room. But for the rich young man, it is this. What if I were to say to you there's no inheritance, no inventory, no servants, no mansions? What if I were to say this to you? All of it is gone. And all you have left is me. Would that be enough? That's the crux of the matter. You see, for each of us, personality-wise, the principle of sin that rests with each of us, that if we want God to be our Savior, we must, each and every one of us, replace what we're already looking to as our Savior. It's an absolute must and an absolute requirement. We cannot keep approaching with an attractional life and just see if we can add Jesus to the mix to really put it over the top. You must replace what you're already leaning upon, what you're already looking to as your Savior. This is the point, not a vow of poverty. This is the call and cost of discipleship. Bear your cross and follow Notice how the passage then goes as we kind of summarize just in the last couple of moments our time. And that is verse 23. He finally got the answer to the question he was looking for and it did not feel right. But when he heard these things, right, these things, not not a single statement that stood out to him, but he got the summary of it all. Oh, man. He says, he became very sad. Why? Because he was extremely rich. It was going to cost him. No, 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 no. I don't want it to cost. I want it to help. I want it to really put me over the top. I want the success it will bring. What kind of check can I write? I'm building a life here. I'm not deconstructing one. What you just said to me, Jesus, makes me very sad. Look at the emotion that I pointed to earlier in our introduction, and that is verse 24. Jesus felt the same way. Verse 24, Jesus, looking at him, Mark says he loved him. This is not a villain. There's an attractional young man here. But he's missing absolutely everything that matters. And Jesus sees it. And he too, as the text says, 
looking at him. And you can kind of see the picture, can't you? The, the young man, very sad, thinking there's just no way. If there are no houses, no servants, and no cash, and I just had you, can I live with that? No way, dude. No. No way. It won't work. We got too much to give up. I know. And I want all of it. Jesus, you make me sad. I'm disappointed in you. And then as he leaves, you see Jesus look at him as he goes. And he too was moved with sadness as the man walked off. And then he exhorts everybody who's listening, who saw the exchange, who eavesdropped in on it as the crowd was gathered and this young man says, okay, look, I'm leaving. Look out. Watch out. I, 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 I got to go. I got to go. And then he turns back to the audience that saw the entire thing and heard the entire exchange. And he says, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. I'm saying it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Like everyone's thinking, camel, needle, got it. Impossible. It's easier in that scenario. Go ahead and try and think to yourself, this is somehow forcing this gigantic head into this eye of the needle. This is somehow easier than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Yes. Riches and materialism have an astounding, blinding effect. And you know as well as I know, you don't have to be rich to be blinded by materialism. It could be something as stupid as an iPhone 10. No offense if anyone has one. I'm not even bagging on you. I don't know your finances. I don't know your choices. But it can be. can be as vain as as stupid as that. They can keep you from the kingdom. Beware of materialism and consumer consumption. Beware. Be warned. It has a blinding effect to the call of the gospel. Because you see why, right? Because the man accumulated so many things and they reaffirmed his value. That's why he can't part with them. And Jesus is saying, no, you have to because that can't be your identity anymore. It can't be your value. I have to be your identity. I have to be your value. Union with me. That has to be who you are. What I pronounce on you. That's your value. That's your identity. That's your meaning. No, I can't. The riches affirm me. This means I'm somebody. I cannot give that up to be found in you. What will my neighbors say? How will they think rightly of me if they can't think of me in these categories? And we go back into accumulating to bring some sense of value because we're not finding our value in Christ. That's the burden to bear here. Finally, I'll conclude the text. Just look real briefly here at the weight of materialism. Everybody was leveled by it. Verse 26, those who heard it said, oh boy, then who in the world can be saved? Right? A theology is working in their minds like, no, no, the riches, he's right, isn't he, Jesus? His accumulation is his identity. Doesn't that mean he's directly blessed of God because he has all these things? I thought, I thought those are the guys who are going to heaven for sure. Are the guys who have, the guys who accumulate, the successful type, you know. Those are the attractional lifestyle. If they can't, who in the world can? You're right. Only those of faith. And faith is a sovereignly distributed gift. Oh, that he would give each and every one of us a faith.
that sees the unseen. When that phone cries out to you, this will make you somebody. You're like, I am somebody. Through faith in Christ, that is my union with him, it's my identity. No, this person will make you feel loved. He makes me feel loved. I am loved. And that frees me up to love others. I said I would conclude, I have to. So he says, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with men and their gravitational pull to items and attractional lifestyles? What is impossible with them to deliver themselves is possible with God. He is the God of the impossible. And Peter speaks up as evidence. So they're, they're unsteady at this point, and we'll get to that next week where they're like not sure of what's going on. So they're a little unsteady on their feet, a little unsure, but they get some measure of like, I just heard you say we need to leave everything and follow you. And that it's impossible for us to make this choice on our own, but God must intervene. Peter, the spokesman for the group, says, I guess it is possible. See, Jesus, we have left everything and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, Peter, guys, there is no one who has left house, wife, brothers, parents, children, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time. You see, whatever you experience in loss or self-denial for the sake of the kingdom of God will be vindicated. In this life, and then he concludes, and in the age to come, eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the text of Holy Scripture that reminds us to separate ourselves.